Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Paul? Paul? Paul, you've gone completely quiet. We can't hear you, Paul. You, I hope, can hear us. We are calling from Planet Football. <laughs> Hello, St. Albans. <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast that beats as it cleans as it sweeps. And if you remember that tagline from the Hoover TV commercial, you've come to the right podcast. Today, John Holmes, Patrick Barclay and I are going to examine the waning influence of print journalism in the reporting of football. Now, time was when we bought the paper specifically to read Geoffrey Green in The Times or Brian Glanville in the Sunday Times, or David Lacey in The Guardian, or Hugh McIlvanny in The Observer, four hugely respected titans of the art of writing about football matches for next day's paper. We have our own titan, of course, in Patrick Barclay, but I, for one, am going to stand back and enjoy the battle that he's going to have with John Holmes, who shaped Gary Lineker's career when he transferred from the football pitch to the television studio. It seems that television has become the arbiter of the game now, and what Gary and Alan and Wrighty say on Saturday night seems to trump anything a print journalist might come up with on a Sunday or a Monday morning. Paddy, you were there in the glory days and you've seen the influence of newspapers gradually but inevitably decline. How do you feel about this transformation? From your point of view, I assume it is not a consummation devoutly to be wished. No, there's still good football writing and lots of it, actually. I could chuck in a few names Sam Wallace at the Telegraph it would be one that immediately springs to mind. Oliver Kay was a colleague of mine at the Times during my nightmare three years there and who disappeared, as you might say, into the athletic. And in a way, the athletic might sort of symptomize the decline of football journalism in the sense that all the articles are far too long. So it's very, very difficult now, but still good football writers like Miguel Delaney, perhaps not as classical a stylist as those two, but by God, in terms of originality of thought, force of opinion, Miguel Delaney would be up with the best of, of my era, say. 
But I think it's a bit of a miracle that even people like that do come through because of the constraints they have. One difference is that, as you say, everything has to go through the mouth of a former footballer now. But my views weren't entirely my own because I had a small group of friends who I would consult. I would study football while I was preaching, really, I suppose, to the audience. But it wasn't just top-of-the-head stuff because people, and John was one of them, all through my career was supportive. I never paid him for it. I just used to ring him up and pinch his thinking. He's shaking his head now, but he knows it. Whereas on coaching matters, Gerard Ullier would help me. I would study. You know, I was a, it was a sort of rolling study program. And also I had more time. You mentioned David Lacey. I worked under Lacey. It was a bloody nightmare because the Guardian would just shovel Lacey's copy untouched into the paper, quite rightly. You wouldn't sub-edit sub Shakespeare, would you? So Lacey's stuff went straight into the paper and my stuff would be cut to make way for it at the bottom of the page. So working with Lacey was awful, much as I liked him as a bloke. But when I got away, when I escaped The Guardian and became a football correspondent myself at The Independent, and I was going head-to-head -head with Lacey on a Monday morning, it was like playing in the cup final once a week. You would go to the match on Saturday and you had to compete with Lacey's Monday morning essay. And, my God, you had to be good to even be mentioned in the same breath. But I had the weekend. My family must have hated it because I would watch match of the day. I would go to bed, sort of marinating the thoughts. Then I'd get up on Sunday and I'd be thinking about it more and more. And I'd write it on the Sunday afternoon and it would go in the paper on the Monday morning. And no doubt be compared unfavorably with Lacey's efforts <laughs> in The Guardian. But that was a fantastic privilege because not only was I fighting for the World Heavyweight Championship as I saw it every Monday morning, but I had time to do my best. That's what they don't have now, because they're tweeting, they're doing a three o'clock in the morning piece, they're doing a seven in the morning piece. I don't know when they sleep. And that's why I was lucky to come in right at the end of the era that encompassed those great ones that you mentioned, Glanville. For me, the very greatest, Brian Glanville. McIlvaney, Lacey, who was the other one you mentioned? Jeffrey Green. Oh, Jeff, he was a bit before my time, yeah. but obviously I've read up on his stuff. I mean, you could mention other greats like Donny Davis, who died in the yes. Munich air crash and who was the Neville Cardus of football, in a way, worked for the mm. same paper. The I think it'd be nice if John got in at this point. That's the trouble, I can talk forever about <laughs> yes, this. Yes, I realise that. Who's saying something about overwriting? <laughs> have I ever talked about television before? And it's no, a, I don't think you mentioned it. No, I don't think I have. time to start. Well... Of course, the central problem was, and I talk as a failed reporter. I worked on the Leicester Mercury. I have actually written reports on my beloved Leicester in an era when not everybody saw the goals and you were reporting on it for people who were not at the game. The problem is now that not everybody is at the game, but everybody has seen the goals. Even if you are a supporter of Rochdale or of Accrington Stanley, you get to see the goals. Mm -hmm. And the pictures are very, very good now. They're not like they used to be. And in those days, of course, especially on foreign games, let's think about England playing away 
You know, we never got pictures of that. The games were not played live. And there was a guy called Desmond Hackett, wasn't there? Mm. Who wrote, and when television came in and people started seeing the pictures, he very quickly said, fuck this for a game of soldiers and I'm <laughs> off. Because everybody realised he hadn't actually been talking about what was going on. Mm. So television has changed everything. The quality of pictures, slow motion replays, the instant amount that people get. Match of the day start, there was just one game on. And you used to get excited about your team being on. Now every game is on. Every game is analysed on match of the day. Every game is on Twitter. You see all the goals and so on. So what is the journalist doing now that people haven't already made their minds up about? And then we get to what is colloquially known by the journos now as the nannies. The mm. quotes. Mm. Most pop papers, and we've concentrated on, or Colin started us off by talking about all those who wrote for what you would call the broadsheets now. There were great writers, you know, on the tabloids. You know, the Sunday Express in those days was a great newspaper. And I still remember Alan Hobie mm. in particular. Mm. I remember his words about David Gibson, who was one of my heroes. And he said, whisper his name and the room goes quiet. Mm. And David, who I get to know, he remembered that all his career, still alive, David's still alive. And he said, I can remember reading that about Alan Hobie and thinking, wow, he's writing about me. So it wasn't just the broadsheets or the serious papers who did. They were, of course, more important. But television's changed all that, Patrick. And what I realised, perhaps quicker than most, was that... The pictures were so good that you couldn't any longer add much. What people wanted to hear was what the pros actually thought and what was happening to them. And, of course, I hung around. I knew a lot of these players. I talked to a lot of these players. That's not to say that there were a lot of good relationships between footballers and journos, mm. but they then put it out in their own words. But I actually realised that if you encourage the players to express their thoughts mm. in the first place i encourage most of them to read some of the better writers then they could actually express themselves and we would learn more about the game yeah. through listening that was true of cricket if you remember we started with you know brian johnston peter west don mosey good journals mm. on the radio but then richie benno came along and Richie Benno started telling us, I think what you'll find he's trying to do. Yeah. And we went, wow, that is what he's trying to do. And then we got replays and it got better. And the same thing has happened in football. It's happened in all sports now. And it is resented by some people. I still have this infamous piece saying that I should be banned from the BBC because I've got Gary working there, I've got David Gower working there, I've got Will Carling working there. But these were England captains. These were intelligent, articulate people. Mm. And I thought they were adding to our knowledge yes. of what it's really about. But the point about, you know, television, radio, I mean, Test Match Special, I suppose, we would all agree, is punditry taken to its absolute logical and delicious conclusion. I don't know if it's still any good because I can't believe that it is as good as it, it was in the days when you would have the amateur, the consumer, if you like, of the sport, which would be Brian Johnson, let's say, and then a critic of the game in the sense of appreciating it rather than criticising it. And then you would have the player 
such as Trevor Bailey, wonderful obdurate cricketer, and Freddie Truman, who was, a, you could hardly say, show us your medals, to Freddie Truman, one of the great England fast bowlers. So you would have a balance between the consumer and the purveyor of the sport. And I think that is where football has gone completely wrong. Because I agree with John that footballers, by and large, are very intelligent. You can't play a fast game in a small space without being intelligent. Okay, but let me interject as somebody who's not actually committed to either side. And I think, Paddy and John, I think we need to recognise that we're talking about not just the nature of football reporting, but the nature of the two different media, because the decline in football writing influence goes along with the decline in newspaper reading and newspaper sales. And the importance of Gary and Wrighty and Shearer is because the number of viewers is going up as the number of newspaper readers is going down. What I suppose I regret, and it's a very personal thing, is, and I think Paddy will appreciate this, is whatever they do on television, they can't give you the majesty of the written word. And there is something about the thoughtfulness and the ability to describe what you're saying in literary terms that's enjoyable for his own sake. And you can't do that on television. I agree with that. And of course, I would agree with you, Colin, as you rightly predicted. But I think not only can the written word be majestic when you talk about the people we talked about before, but it can also enhance. One of the best-known football writers today is Henry Winter. And I think that the best thing about Henry Winter is his match reporting. Sometimes I read his match reports, and I think he has actually made it better than it was on the telly the night before, because he's added resonance to it by his enthusiasm, by his descriptive power and so on. So I think it should be part of the game. But just to go back to what I was saying before about the necessity for a mixture of the professional and the trained observer, there was a match in the opening day of the season. I think it was the Arsenal-Forest game. I'm not absolutely sure. But because of the new rules post-Ariana Grande of having to search bags and so on before, the match was delayed, the kickoff was delayed for half an hour. But the only pundits on hand were footballers. So we had to listen while this match was delayed to an hour of these guys. I can't even remember who they were, but they talked a load of piffle about how will the players be feeling? When did they have their warm-up? They're talking entirely from the point of view of the footballers, 22 footballers, and there's 30,000 fans who are paying for it all, milling around outside in a state of not knowing. And there's nobody there saying, yeah, but what about the fans? I think that's the case, is it not? Fortunately, Paddy, both you and I have Colin and Paul to put us back on track. Mm. And that is a question of the skill of the editor and the director of the programming. Yes. I don't watch a lot of the preamble to these games live on television. I confess I think one of the joys of Match of the Day is that actually the analysis is never too long. It moves on. You watch your team play and they get beaten or they win and you then get some views and you may not agree with them, but you get a view that gives you something that you can discuss. So there is editing going on. Mm. And those directors and editors are not necessarily all, I don't know of any, who are ex-players at the moment. Jimmy Hill, the great Jimmy Hill, took a sort of executive role in television as well, as did Billy Wright, actually, going further back. And the head of outside broadcasts at the BBC at one point was a man called Cliff Morgan, came from rugby, 
So that's just about editing, isn't it? And what I would say about that experience you had, that's actually poor editing. Yes, and I, I can it, see it, it, Paul is actually directing us now because he's typing things. Yeah. Actually telling you to shut up, Paddy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we need editors and so on to put us right. And you, as a writer, also required an editor yes. who would say to you, that piece is not correct. Yeah. I can remember reading a print piece by a journalist on a second division game between two clubs. And the journal concerned had written in the Telegraph that this was a rubbish game and he really couldn't be asked to write anything about it. Mm. Now, does he not realise that the only people who would be reading that piece are not people admiring his journalism, but fans? It was a game between Leicester and Blackburn, as I recall. Yeah, he could say it was a poor game, but actually the fans of both those clubs, who were probably the only people who were going to read that piece, wanted to hear about that game. Mm. So there's a relationship between the editors and the writers, just as there is a relationship between the manager and the players or the coach and the players. It's a two-sided thing. And I believe that players have not taken over the editing and no, so. no, that's true. But I mean, I agree that he probably shouldn't have done that. He was following actually the example of Eric Todd, who was very uh, distinguished. My hero. Yes. And he went to a match between Liverpool and Arsenal once. And he said a match took place on Saturday between Liverpool and Arsenal at Anfield Stadium. The score was nil-nil. And frankly, there's nothing else to say. It was 49 words. That kind of thing, because as, as you know, Colin, if, if Eric Todd was your hero, you'll know that those kind of people were very much laws unto themselves. It's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. An editor should say, listen, it's not about you, Eric. Just tell the fans what happened. But to, just to go back briefly, apropos of that, to what John was saying about that same editing process should have been done better in the Liverpool-Arsenal game. I would say that's maybe a little harsh on the duty producer or director because the panel they had, not one of them will ever have been in a crowd. Possibly none of them have ever paid for admission to a football match. They don't know what it's like to be a fan. They haven't a bloody clue. I also feel the same when you get these ex-footballers talking about refereeing decisions. They know bugger all about the subject. They don't know anything about refereeing, unless they've taken refereeing courses, in which case I apologise to those individuals. But most of them know nothing about refereeing, except that it's there to be used as a whipping boy. I want to bring you back to print journalism and the decline of the word. In a sense, something did occur to me when Paddy was rabbiting on about about the half an hour wasted time of everybody's lives when the crowd was outside the ground. Yeah, I only wasted 25 minutes of yours. (laughs) In the olden days, of course, what yeah. cricket would always do when it rained would be, well, we're now back to the studio and we'll play some music, which, of course, was probably a better idea than having these the rabbiting on going on. But let me just put this to the both of you, because I just feel I'm on the outside. I'm trying to represent the people listening and not the pros that the, the two of you are in this case. And that is there is too much. There is too much of both of you. There is too much television and there is too many supplements And I wish there was less, because I think it might be better. When England won the World Cup in 1966, Donald Trelford, the late, great Donald Trelford, editor of The Observer, had an argument with David Astor as to whether they should cover it on the front page. Mm. And in the end, Donald won, and it was put on the front page. 
Compare that with when England reached the Euro final a couple of years back. The fact is that the game has grown. The game is now massive. You walk down the street, people are talking about it. You sit in a train, people are talking about it. The game has grown. In far-off times, of course, the people who ran newspapers, people who ran the BBC, they didn't understand sport or football, and they didn't think it was very important. I'm taking on Paul's point of view, our editor here. Are we not really lamenting the decline of written journalism in many walks of life? The arts, especially with social media, everyone now thinks they can be an expert and publish their reviews on Twitter or in podcasts. I think it's a very good point. That's why I'm quoting it in full. And I think that applies to football in spades, as it were. John, Mm. your response to that? Yeah, there is a lot of that. And of course, we're now the old farts that we used to bemoan. Mm. And I can remember talking to one of the great political writers, Alan Watkins, Mm. who wrote in Mm. The Observer. And he commented about political writers that very few had the perspective that he had of age that they did have conversations with Harold Wilson. They did meet Ernest Bevin. They did meet Gateskull. They met Macmillan. They met these people and they also remembered vividly Suez and Mm. they remembered other crises and could put a perspective on it that a lot of the younger writers couldn't do. That perspective didn't make the younger writers inferior. It just meant they hadn't got the historical perspective. The problem is now that I think there are so many opinions and so many Johnny-come-latelys to the sport, and also so many people now become supporters of clubs because they've seen them on television. They've never been to the ground. They have no idea of the heritage of the club. They've not even had that passed down from their father or their mother or anyone in their family. So it's difficult. Does it mean their opinion is less valid? No, it actually doesn't because, you know, they're entitled to their opinion and they see it as they see it. We're getting now, because of the age of television, that we actually do get the chance to go back and we can see shots of Peter Shilton playing or Joe Corrigan Mm. playing. Mm. And you referred the other week, there are YouTubes of Duncan Edwards playing. I watched the video that you referred to. Of the goal against Germany. Yeah. Yeah. The goal against Germany. And indeed, you would have said, wow, Mm. what a goal Mm. in any era, any strength and power going forward. So as it goes on, I do believe it will get better because we can reference just as In the old days, the only way to reference was to go back to books. Now we can reference video. But we can see the Hungarian, the great 1953 game at Wembley, the Hungary 1-6-3. And we can see the moment where Pushkas drags the ball back with his foot, leaves Billy right on his bottom, and the ball goes into the top corner past Gil Merrick. Now, at the same time, we can also remember the fact that Geoffrey Green wrote about it in this memorable way of a fireman going to the wrong fire. So what I suppose I'm saying is that I don't see that the power of the visual shouldn't diminish forever the importance of the written word when the written word is so good. Firemen going to the wrong fire when you see Billy Wright on his bottom. It's such a perfect image. And you can't get that on a commentary on television. It's pretty true that none of the players on the pitch that day said, good God, 
Billy Wright's gone to the wrong fire. <laughs> of course, they appreciated the drag back and so on. It's different things, isn't it? But players have improved and we've all learned. And I watch, and I'm referring to another sport now, some of the analysis of the cricket by NASA, mm. by Mike Atherton, yeah. who also writes, incidentally, yeah. I have to declare he's a client, is outstanding and does improve my understanding of the sport, yes. as do the pictures, the slow motion. Sometimes the real speed stuff coming back and about umpiring and all the things that they have to do. Mm. So it's all these things put together. The memorable phrase will always live with us, won't it? The key thing is still what Paddy said earlier, which is time. The time a journalist has usually to compose his piece, to think of that image of the fireman going to the wrong fire. With the advent of social media, everything about social media is instant. It's an instant judgment. It's not a considered judgment. I think, I think it was rubbish or whatever. You know, mm. you're not going to get the fireman going to the wrong fire because you haven't got the ability to stand back and think about it. Because if you have, 65,000 people have got in before you and taken the primary position on social media about the game. Yeah, it's all fart time. We are the age that we are. Mm. But as a writer of prose that I polish, is mm. all I can say, yeah. as much as I possibly can. I do regret the instant delivery of opinion. It's not the opinions that the problem, it's the manner in which they are delivered. No, I think there's another aspect of the social media dimension, which is that I'm not going to get any prizes for originality in saying that Twitter lowers the tone, or X as it's now called. It's very interesting. For some reason, the people you meet in the street, and one of the great things about being an ex-football writer is that people actually stop you in the street and say, what do you think of Arsenal? I love it. I absolutely adore it. And they're always nice and polite and knowledgeable. You then go on to Twitter, and it's like you've been sent out as a posse to round up as many idiots as you can find. Because all you have to do is put a sensible opinion. Like, there was a game, Chelsea against Liverpool, right at the beginning of the season, and Chilwell, a former Leicester player, was pushed over in the penalty area and they didn't even discuss whether it was going to be a penalty. But I said, how was that not a penalty? And almost every single response said it was a dive by Chilwell. And I had, I must have had, well, I stopped. I, I thought, oh, bollocks to this and, 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 and stopped after 100. I don't know where they come from. I think it's a special class of people that Elon Musk makes in a little disused Tesla factory. And... Well, are these the people who show up on 606 with Chris Sutton and Robbie Savage, of which I can listen to about four minutes? Well, that's four minutes more than I can manage. Now, John's looking at me in a funny sort of way that suggests he disagrees, in which case he should be allowed to express his opinion. I'm thinking of the people listening to this going, what are these old idiots saying here? Why are their opinions more valid than ours? You know what? A lot of it doesn't really matter, Paddy. The great thing is, for my way of thinking, that the game survives all this. Is everyone's opinion valid? No, of course it's not. Does everyone have proper historical perspective? We all believe that we've got greater knowledge because we've lots and lots of games. But what is good is that people actually talk about the game and enjoy the game. And I don't mind their opinions, however daft they are. It doesn't matter. 
I think what is relevant from the written point of view is that there are good writers and there are people who just take down quotes because we want to hear the quotes, yeah. don't we? Yes. We want to hear yes. the quotes from the players and so we want to know what they think, even though sometimes what managers say after the game makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah, we want to know it though, don't we? Well, do we? Can you see any of those titans we talked about before, Paddy? racing across the pitch to get to the manager before he goes in the dressing room. I can't see John Arlott doing that because what those managers say, particularly in, in those ridiculous moments straight after the game, yeah. is pointless. Yeah, frankly. Well, sometimes they say sensible things. Let me tell you, when I was chairman, I did say to the manager, I'm not going to discuss the game with you straight afterwards because we'll both of us be too emotional about yeah. it. Ring me the next day at 11. Yeah. Yeah. And... That's what we did. And I felt that was a better way about it. Mm. Television demands that they have interviews. Mm. And I quite often feel very, very sorry for managers that they are thrust into a situation with a microphone stuck up their nose when they are clearly very emotional about what has happened. And some of them develop defensive techniques for this. Arsene Wenger used to say, I never saw it. Yes. And famously on television, Gary, on the Sports Review of the Year, said to him, are you happy with the view you have of the game? Because you don't appear to see a lot of what's going on, which was, uh, you know, Mm. a a reminder to Mm. us all that it's difficult. Instant reaction, as Paddy has pointed out, Mm. is often wrong. Yeah doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't get it because it's all part of the game. Yeah. We all have instant reactions but after all, a game. You all also have something called media training. My understanding is that players and managers are coached so they don't get into problems after the game. So you would be trained to say something as anodyne as possible that's going to upset as few people as possible. It will be a defensive reaction. That's what, if you've got training, that's how it would work. It's also akin to saying... Sitting, as you do now at a game, and a goal is scored, and the guys next to you jump up in the air, and you sit there and say, hold on a second, I need to see the replay before I comment. (laughs) That takes a lot of the joy (laughs) out of the game. Instant reaction is part of the game, so don't completely knock it. Mm. It is part of the emotion of what we experience going there, and there is also a place for analysis which the players give you, they know more about what playing is like for us. They really do. Hearing Chilton talk about goalkeeping and goalkeeping technique was a complete education. Oh, I can understand. And so on. Yes. Listening privately, as I have done to Lineker, talking about goal scoring, about timing of runs, you have access to that now. It's not just me because I know one or two players have got access. We have access to that now. And that informs both journalists who write about it later and it informs the public who support. Doesn't stop the instant reaction. Doesn't stop the joy. If we take that out of the game, if we all sit at games going... I want to hold on for a second before I have uh, thought about this goal. No, no, if it's your side, you can't do that. And Paddy, where do you see the football journalist in 10, 15 years' time? Because there is a terrible sense, from my point of view, of a downward decline in influence Mm. that's almost unstoppable. I mean, and the power of television will similarly increase. Yes, I would love to come back against you on that one and prove you wrong. 
But my analysis would be much the same as yours. The decline, thank God, has been gradual. And I mentioned Sam Wallace. You know, I could have mentioned lots of others. But attempts to improve the quality, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Jonathan Wilson, who's brought tactics into football writing to a much greater degree than anybody before. Unfortunately, he's spawned a host of inferior imitators. But there have been other positive elements, such I'm thinking about an online magazine called The Blizzard, which Philippe Auclair of France Football, based in London, and the aforementioned Wilson have been involved in, and that's been good. But if you look at the mass market, which is what we're really talking about, the athletic has been a great experiment that, in my opinion, has failed. We've got long, flabby articles, some good ones, but not enough, really. That's the kind of thing that I hope that quality would make its own argument and therefore would prevail. At the moment, I can't see it happening, so I can't really say, no, sorry, Colin, you're wrong, because I think you're right. In the glory days, I mean, you know, in my early days Sporting City, I'm talking about the late 60s, early 70s, when City had a really important win, when they beat United or they won some major match on a Wednesday night or a Saturday afternoon, I would actually buy, in inverted commas, all the papers, all the broadsheets and all what are now regarded as, I mean, the Mail and the Express and the Mirror. So I'd buy seven papers or so to read about it because I wanted to consume as much as possible. That was all about quantity mm. and not about quality. Mm. So I, I absolutely own up to the fact that, that it's the old fartism that's wanting one person to be very, very good and to write brilliantly about it, and he's the person I'm going to want to read. But in the days when we didn't have the amount of television coverage we have, I would buy all the papers. And it was a pleasure to do so, and that's gone, but that's because society's changed. I remember an occasion... It was a Leicester-Liverpool game. I was at university. Two friends of mine supported Liverpool. We went to the game together. We went out for a drink after and we got up the next morning. And my friends were absolutely amazed when in the morning my father had been down to the uh, paper shop. He had bought all the newspapers <laughs> and he dumped them on their bed. And I said, yeah, he's a bit of a fan, my dad. And he's a fan of the written word as well. And, you know, you talked to the old editors. They knew that if a side won an important game, the print order had to go up. Yeah. Local newspapers were sustained in many ways by their coverage of the local side. And now you don't get a local journal covering the club all the time because there's not enough readership now to support no well let me ask this final question to both of you because i think it's something that i think our listeners might be intrigued by the relationship between the club and the local newspaper reporter has changed out of all recognition and it used to be when they fell out of favor and they weren't allowed to travel on the team bus it was a big deal mm -hmm. but now talking now about national journalists what is their relationship with the club the club don't need journalists they need television so do the journalists feel the nose pushed out of joint by this? Do they still feel part of the club in the way that certainly the television journalists would feel part of the club? No, I think that they're more marginal, even though some newspapers and websites do increasingly appoint a reporter a bit like a local newspaper reporter. You know, you could be Arsenal correspondent of The Athletic, for example. That's a kind of equivalent of that. I would have hated a job like that, just watching one team. But I'm not 
in on the inside at all, far from it these days. But the relationship will be more distant than it was. I came in right at the end of an era where you might go out for a drink with players. I, I mean, there wasn't as much of it as old journalists like to pretend. But occasionally it happened that you'd have a post-match pint with the players. I remember Howard Kendall's Everton. You know, I got to know people like Neville Southall and uh, one or two others by having a crafty jar with them after an away game in Europe or something. That kind of thing won't take place because quite rightly, players nowadays don't indulge in that public, semi-public drinking and socialising. They're fitter and more discreet because of social media and, and so on. John, final question to you. Gary is probably the most powerful voice in football at the moment, as far as the public is concerned. People listen to Gary, and he has this almost unique position in the game. How does he deal with the power that television has given, and the fact that he's very good at the job? How does that affect him? It's something that none of us will ever experience. It must be quite, you know, could be overwhelming. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure there, isn't there? Mm. Jimmy Hill actually had a similar sort of position. Yes. I suppose that, and this is partly to do with people have become more confrontational in everything. There seemed to be those that were anti him, and they expressed that quite forcibly and so on. That's actually more to do with what he may say on other subjects, mm. Mm. which they will always say, oh, why doesn't he stick, stick to football? To football yeah. Which I've always thought is the most ridiculous comment in the world, in that politics is in every part of life. What am I? I've done all sorts of jobs. Am I not allowed to talk about something else? Am I not allowed to talk about politics because I was at one point a journalist or I was a football club chairman and I was at one stage an insurance broker and these sort of things. Politics is about the business of living together. So that bit is stupid. I think he copes with it pretty well. And some of the abuse that he takes on social media, should he not express an opinion? Well, I get people saying to me, he's got far too much to say for himself. So you haven't. You're allowed to express opinions on anything, but he isn't. Why? I don't know. As we all know, and Patrick, you will know, a journalist and people on television, they always get accused. Oh, we all know him. He's biased. Yeah, yeah. The BBC are biased because we are as we are and we see it from our perspective. It's part of modern life and I guess we have to expect it. And if you put yourself under pressure as a player and you're playing at the highest level, as Gary did, and you're going through on your own, with only the goalkeeper to beat. If you miss it, you're a Muppet. Mm. If you score, it's wonderful. Yeah. On that note, shall we say, on that bombshell, <laughs> it's been a fascinating <laughs> session as ever. I've enjoyed it because I'm not part of either of your gangs. And it's just the way the world, isn't it? We can't change things. We might as well enjoy what we've got while we've got it without forgetting what football journalism did for us, at least the three of us, in our early days when we read it and devoured it and when we recognised the quality of that writing. So thank you very much, John, and thank you very much, Matt. And thank Pleasure. you as ever to our indefatigable producer, Paul Kobrak. And we are obviously curious about whether we are choosing the right topics for you to be listening into. So please write to us and tell us. We will take any amount of abuse. I'm not on social media, so I don't see any abuse. It's all rather marvellous as far as I'm concerned. 
but I am going to read everything you sent to me on footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. And we, we will read it and we will take the abuse, give it all the credence that you can possibly imagine. So until next time, when we meet again on Football Ruin My Life, this is Colish Shinder saying, thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh, by the way, before we go, finally, John, aren't you doing something with Boom Radio about football? Didn't you do an interview or something with Boom Radio? Well, it's kind of, you said it was about football. It's more about me. The Boom Radio interview with Phil Riley, which is on nine o'clock on Sunday night. It will be on all week on their catch up. And the following Thursday, there's a repeat of that. After which it disappears, unfortunately, but there you are. Anyway, so you've only got this week to catch up with it. So if you're listening later, that's a problem. Never mind. But Boom Radio, if those of you haven't heard it or haven't got it, you can get it on the internet. You can get it on DAB. Just go Boom Radio and you will be able to find it. Excellent. We look forward to it. Is there much football on it or is it just really about you? There's a fair amount of football because, as you know, Colin, football ruined my life. Ah, that's a coincidence. And one or two of the stories may be familiar to those regular listeners, even the ones listening in Azerbaijan. We get to 57 countries, apparently, extraordinarily. We do. So you can get it on internet radio for those of you living abroad. But for those of you living in UK of a certain age, which is our age, you will find actually that Boom plays the sort of music you've been familiar with all your life. It plays two records on the trot. There's not a lot of irritating nonsense from DJs, although the DJs are names you may be familiar with from the past. So it's an interesting lesson. And do we assume that Boom Radio is going to be as equally kind to football ruin my life as football ruined my life has been to Boom Radio. You can assume that I wouldn't have consented to go on. I am a person of commercial nous, as they say. Yet, to Phil Riley's eternal credit, he's one of the founders of Boom Radio. He was keen to make sure that I promoted yours and my favourite podcast. Marvellous. Well, we can assume that you're now on the circuit of talk shows. Thank you, John, very much. See you all next time on Football Ruined My Life. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.